All right, let's do our first question. Do you see Nehemiah 12, 27, a metaphor referring to the same cleansing and Levitical role for those coming out of Babylon? Uh, and Nehemiah, is uh, this, this text is referring to repairing the breach in the wall. They went back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and so forth. There's a great commentary on this, Prophets and Kings, page 677. I want to go over it with you because I think it's a great lesson for us. And I want you to really get the implication of this. You should mark down this. You can go home and read it this afternoon. Prophets and Kings, 677. It says, the spiritual restoration of which the work carried forward in Nehemiah's day was a symbol. So the answer the person's question, yes, symbolic. It's got a symbolic meaning. Uh, is outlined in the words of Isaiah. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 6, 1 and 4 and 58, 12. They shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolation and they shall repair the waste cities. They, they that shall be of, of thee shall build up the old waste places. They shall raise up the foundations in many gener of many generations. And they shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. Think about that, restore the paths, think in the way to live, restoring the breach, the breach in what? Well, this quote of prophets and kings goes on. The prophet describes a people who in a time of general departure from the truth and righteousness are seeking to restore the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. They are repairers of a breach that has been made in God's law, the wall that is has placed around his chosen ones for their protection and so forth. So first off, what are principles? Are they rules? No, these are design laws. These are the protocols of reality. These are what, what, what uh, life is built upon. And there's a breach in these protocols. There's a breach in these principles. And this people at the end of time are going to repair this breach, calls people back to worship God as creator and understand his laws, his design laws. Continuing on with this quotation, in words of unmistakable meaning, the prophet points out specific work that the remnant people who, who build the wall, if you turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall seek the Lord and honor him, and so forth. So calling attention to the Sabbath is what? As a delight. Think through that as a delight. Can you get joy and delight out of people by commanding them to obey rules they don't want to keep? No. So if we identify the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience and teach people that if they do it, they'll be punished. This is no longer a, a delight. This is, again, design law. And now notice, again, Prophets and Kings, the very next paragraph, what this says. In the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man to be is to be repaired. Notice this sentence does not say the breach made in the law by the change of the Sabbath. It says the breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed. Get your mind. Many Adventists who have the imperial legal view think that the breach in the law was the Sabbath being changed from Sabbath to Sunday uh, by, the, uh, by, by the Roman church. It was not. That was the evidence of the breach. The breach is the idea that God's law works like Roman law, a system of rules that is actually changeable. And then that is the actual breach made in the law that resulted in deleting the second commandment, splitting the tenth into two, and changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. All those amendments happened because people accepted the breach. God's law works like human law. Human law is changeable. Therefore, God's law is changeable. That's the real breach in the law that we are now called 
to repair by calling people back to worship the creator and understanding his laws or design laws. So I encourage you to check that out for yourself. What page is that, Tim? 677. 677. What does it mean in Luke 22, 36, where Jesus tells his disciples that if they don't have a sword, they should sell their cloak and buy one? Then when the disciples say they have two swords, Jesus tells them that's enough. It sounds like he is in favor of weapons. But I know he tells Peter later to put away a sword, that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Can you offer some insight? Yes. Um, the word, the Greek translated sword, can refer to either the short Roman sword or it can uh, uh, refer to a butcher's knife. And so in my paraphrase, I translated it as a hunting knife, that he's telling them that the time has now come where instead when he sent them out the first time, they would be received friendly, people would put them up at their house, that things are going to turn and they're going to probably have to live off the land for a while. They won't find a lot of good support in people's homes, so they better have a good hunting knife where they can, they, they can survive in the wilderness. That's how I understand that. For those who haven't, for those who haven't, have not learned what we have about the character of God and design laws, how can we effectively explain the transition between God using what appears to be imposed law in the Old Testament to the fact that God's government does not operate and impose law this way? I explain this all over the place. We have so many resources on our website that explain this. It's in my book, Could It Be This Simple? It's in my book, The God-Shaped Brain. It's in our... Um, uh, series, um, God in Your Church, Growing Up in Christ, that video series. It's in our church, um, it's in our video series, um, The Power of Love Training and Equipping Course. It's in a blog I wrote on December 7. If you go to our website, uh, just December 7 of this year, the blog is entitled The Death Penalty in Old Testament Times. I encourage you to start with that, just written a couple of weeks ago. And I go ex explicitly to this question of God's use of law in the Old Testament. It sounds like he's making a judicial system. And I unpack that for you and show how that's not the case. And so I encourage you to start with those resources and familiarize yourself with those evidences, and then you'll be able to go forward and present these things. Thank you for enlightening me this year that God is healer and not judge. The mindset change has such a healing effect on my spirituality and mentality. The Holy Spirit is able to communicate more powerfully in my life. I really enjoy the substitute teachers because they give other perspectives and life experiences in their journey. Since your presentation um, with the podcast, What is an Adventist, has received over 11,000 views since uh, November Nine, I would think there's hunger. Will there be more podcasts? Yes, we are working on um, creating more podcasts of a similar nature. Uh, we'll let you know when those are available. So thanks for the question. I hope you can recommend a lexicon for study. Thank you. Well, I, I use a, a Bible software program called um, Logos Bible Software. And Logos Bible Software has a whole bunch of different platforms with so many resources. And in there, I have a variety, a whole bunch of lexicons that I can access on every verse. And I have probably 25 different English translations and, and so forth. That is a proprietary platform that you will have to pay a, a variety of fees, depending on whether you get the silver, gold, platinum, diamond, or whatever, uh, which gives you access to different things. But that is the the platform I use for most of my you know research and Bible study um, for that type of work. I've heard you say in today's lesson that Clifford Goldstein wrote on 23 December Adventist Review that God killed Jesus. I just read that, his article, and didn't see that discussion. Where do I find it? No, I didn't say on December 23. I said December 8, 
2023, December 8, 2023, Adventist Review. Uh, if you get today's notes, um, uh, when we post those notes, which will be probably tomorrow, there will be a reference there that you can link to and it will find it. But you can go to the Adventist Review December 8 and look up Goldstein's article and you will find that. I think it's in the first and second to last paragraphs are the um, elements that I quoted. Isn't unceasing prayer quite God humanly possible while consumed with aspect? I don't really understand the question. I think it means to be uh, unceasing in prayer simply means if you understand prayer is conversation with God as a friend, you keep your heart and mind oriented toward God. So your thoughts and are always for God and for his purposes that you have a heart oriented toward God. It doesn't mean you're in some state of, you know, eyes closed and, and head bowed situation. Are the behemoth and Leviathan and Job 40 and 41 literal animals or figurative or metaphor? Um, you know, I think that, that that's a good question and it's not actually definitive. And there's a lot of debate in the um, theological circles about that. Uh, you can, and even if they are literal, they can also be metaphor. Lambs are literal, goats are literal. They're used metaphorically to describe, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and, and so forth. Uh, so are serpents. The serpent is a literal creature and yet it's uh, identified to use use as Satan and it's also used in the serpent on the brass staff uh, at the time of Israel to represent the Messiah. And so even if they are literal, they also have metaphorical or symbolic application. And I've seen uh, good presentations that Leviathan symbolically represents the great serpent, Satan, uh, our enemy. So I wouldn't necessarily take it either or. Thank you so much for this powerful Bible study. I have a brain question. I have a son of two and a half. I like to collect all the videos and pictures that I made of us and I show him on the iPad instead of cartoons that he used to watch. I wonder whether I am still not doing him well, though it's only videos and pictures of us, your insights. Uh, so my understanding is that um, below the age of two and a half, um, below the age of two and a half, video watching of any kind, theatrical or educational, delays language development. So any video uh, interaction before the age of two slows language development. After the age of two, language development picks up. So whether there's long-term consequence of that, that is that has not been determined, but the early language development is delayed. Um, the screen time that has negative consequence is theatrical entertainment, entertainment that suspends the development of the prefrontal cortex and inflames emotion circuits, which are all the, you know, various programmings of movies and, and sitcoms and things like that. That's the stuff that actually has been documented to uh, increase inattention problems and mood regulatory problems and behavior acting out problems, early um, uh use of the early engagement in sexual behavior, um, more likely to use substances, are all increased if people, uh, kids grow up watching a lot of theatrical entertainment. Educational programming does not cause those negative changes. So, all right. That's the last question. Hope you all have a good week and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.